Thanks for downloading the UCD Humanities Institute podcast. This podcast series features recordings of lectures, seminars and events hosted by or associated with the University College Dublin Humanities Institute. For more information, go to ucd.ie forward slash humanities. In this episode, a recording from Women and the Sea, a public symposium which took place at the National Maritime Museum of Ireland on the 25th and 26th of September 2015. The symposium was supported by UCD Earth Institute, UCD Humanities Institute, the National Maritime Museum of Ireland, Dunleary Rathdown County Council, and the Atlantic Archipelago's Research Consortium. The symposium was recorded for podcasting by Real Smart Media. This episode features a recording of Panel 1, Gender and the Sea. The panel featured three speakers, Susan Steele from the Sea Fisheries Protection Agency, whose presentation was entitled Not Just Mermaids, The Waves That Women Can Create, Julie Maguire from the Dahiomuraku Marine Research Station, who spoke about working on a marine research station on the Sheep's Head Peninsula, and John Mack from the Sainsbury Research Unit at the University of East Anglia, who spoke about the gender of ships. The panel was chaired by Dr. Taz Crow from University College Dublin. Slides and images referenced by the speakers are available to view on the Women in the Sea page in the podcast section of the UCD Humanities Institute's website. Welcome everybody to this uh, Women in the Sea symposium. It's a real pleasure to be here chairing the first session. And as Richard said, um, time is tight and we're going to have to be strict with time, so I won't waste any further ado, but I will introduce our first speaker, Dr. Susan Steele, who's currently chair of the Sea Fisheries Protection Authority, a post to which she was appointed in 2013. Uh, Dr. Steele comes from Castletown Bear and decided at the age of three that she wanted to become a marine biologist. So she's followed her heart with the sea ever since. And she's been working in a wide variety of research, academic and private and public sector appointments, all based around the sea. So she's managed to, to, to stay true to her dreams. And her last appointment involved setting up BIM's Seafood Development Centre as head of innovation. And prior to that, she headed up agriculture and business training. She holds a PhD in zoology from UCC, as well as a BSc in marine biology from the University of Wales, an MBA and a master's in education. Aside from all that, Dr. Steele is a mother of seven with five of her own and two stepchildren. She's a keen pilot, currently undertaking seaplane rating and an ultra runner, recently completing the 200 kilometer Kerry Way Ultra. So uh, I'll pass over without further ado to uh, Dr. Steele. So when I was about three, I found a book, and I was lucky enough before I went to school that I could, um, could read. And it was this book, it was on seashore life, and I used to study it. I'd go walking on the shores, I'd look at the seaweed, look at the sea life, and I truly, truly loved it. And I used to read this book over and over again, you can see the worn cover of it. And as time went on, I've moved up through a career. Until about three years ago, there were no women in any leadership positions in the Marine in Ireland. But if we have a look now, you've got a woman in charge of Irish Lights, you've got a woman in charge of BIM. I head up the Sea Fisheries Protection Authority. I don't know if many of you have heard about what we do, but our role is to maintain a level playing field at sea. You see, the Marine is one of the last shared resources that there are on the planet. 
we actually, everybody in this room owns part of that sea that's out there. And the Sea Fisheries Protection Authority, our role is to make sure that everyone gets a fair share of what's, what fish are available and are out there. We also look after seafood safety. So things have changed. Now, I wish that I could say that things have changed because it was easy. But when I sat down and I talked to people, and I know that Julie and every other person who's had a career in the Marine says this, a job in the Marine isn't actually normally that easy. Working at sea, you've got shifting seas, weather, storms coming in, things changing when you can least expect them. And for anybody who works in the sea, whether you're, you're a man or you're a woman, it's very, very difficult. And for every woman who's worked through the sea, they can tell you different stories about how hard it's been. So my story started when I was very, very young. I actually, at about the age of 11, I approached one of the local salmon farms that used to farm salmon on the, on the land, and I asked to do work experience. And I used to go and work. And a lot of the work around the sea, it isn't that glamorous. My job involved cleaning green gunk off the edge of the salmon farms. And I know that when Julie talks, a lot of the guys who are working um, with her and ladies, the work isn't that glamorous either. And we used to clean off the gunk, and then by the time you'd finished one tank, there'd be another tank that was gunked up, and it never was ending, really. And they used to give me £20 a week, you know, as a token, because I was 11, and I'd stand there all day with a brush cleaning the tanks. And I used to save the money, and the picture on the right is, is in Shirkin Island. I used to go to the marine station with the money that I'd saved, and I used to undertake marine biology courses with marine biologists who'd come in as part of Shirkin Island's long-term monitoring program. And as I got older, I moved on in jobs. I worked on mussel farms and on oyster farms. And in the winter, I used to work in the herring factories. And this is the processing where most of the women at the time were working. About 55% were women in the processing plants. And I don't know if any of you have ever smelt a herring. They really stink, okay? And they're prized for their gonads. Um, and they, they would be, your job would be standing in three degrees um, because you couldn't heat the fish up or, or, uh, because otherwise it would go off. And your job was turning the herring into the machine. And being honest about it, it might not have been a nice work environment, but everybody in there loved it. And there was a huge camaraderie that went on. And it brings me back to the thing that I thought about when the psychologist said, well, what's it been like to be working for your whole life? I actually, and this sounds like a very odd thing, have never worked. Because my passion for the sea has been so strong, each of those jobs was complete pleasure. As you cleaned off the green weeds, you might see a small sea spider, or you might see something that was in them. As you did the herring, you looked at the different sizes and the scales. With fish, when you look at them, their, their sensory system is on the outside of their body. The scales that actually, so when you touch a fish, if they were alive, which the herring weren't, they can actually feel everything. They don't have eyelids, their eyes. So everything that's in the sea, when you start talking about it, has an incredible adaption to living there. And even though the jobs were tough and physically hard in the same way probably as running 200 kilometers was, um, you didn't notice it because you had a passion for it and because of this huge relationship that was going on in the sea. Now, I progressed from those jobs. I, was, I, I'm, I, and I am grateful to so many people. There are so many people who've helped me at every single step of the way. And I, I would love to name them all, but we'd be here 
from now till tomorrow and I'd get the halt sign. So, it, you know, as I go through this, there's huge gratitude from me to different people who are in the sea. I went through my degree. I went through my, my PhD. I did my postdoc. And then I ended up back in Castle Tambert, where I'd come from, and I got offered a new kind of a challenge um, by the man who introduced us all at the start, Richard McCormick. And I got offered the challenge of teaching fishermen. Now, I was 27 at this stage, and um, I don't have a very fishing accent, or a West Cork accent, even though I come from there. So I was 27, I had a posh accent. Even though I'd worked in fish farms, I wasn't a fisherman. I was an academic. And my job, Richard said, was to teach the fishermen the most important role, which is how to take care of their fish, to take care of the catch. So I was pondering about it, and I thought, how on earth am I going to get them to listen to me as a small girly, in a way, without the accent? And you can see these are some of the guys that I, I, I was teaching. And um, so I decided to put them all in the bus at five in the morning. So we put them all in a bus at five in the morning, and we took them by bus, or I took them by bus, to an auction hall. Now, the way that fishing vessels work in Ireland is a share system. Everybody who's on the fishing vessel gets a share. So the boat gets one share, and each of the fishermen get a share, except for the last guy on, because he's the youngest, and he's always the cook, and he gets half a share. So the amount of money that a boat makes is the money that every person in the, on that vessel makes. So we went to the auction hall and union hall, and we walked up and down, and I said to them, have a look at good fish that's laid out properly, it's iced, it's fresh, and then have a look at the fish that's been chucked across the boat, it's mushed into the box, and have a look at the difference. And the fishermen walked along, and they all looked at good fish and bad fish, they knew the difference. And afterwards, we looked at the prices the fish got in the auction. And BIM, it was a big deal, we treated them to breakfast. And we sat down over breakfast with a notebook and we worked out what their share would go up by if they landed good fish. And it worked out at 15,000 old Irish pounds per man. And every single one of those guys came to every single class and they listened and they learnt and they did really well in the exams. And I was so fortunate, at the end of that three-month period, I got offered a job in the Regional Fisheries College in Castletown Bear, and I got the pleasure and privilege of working with fishermen and women and fish farmers and people from all over the coasts of Ireland, teaching them about the sea and about seaweed and about boat handling and about radio courses, and we were kind of jacks of all trades, so it was about 28 different courses, I think, that we ended up doing with them. And, and it was an amazing time. It was mainly men. I think it was about 90% men that came into the classes. And one of the things I noticed that was incredible was the respect. Not once in 11 years of teaching was a disrespectful word ever sent to me. And this was a thing that when I reflected on it is due to the huge reliance of everybody who's at sea at the people who are at home. Even though the fishing industry might be mainly men who are at fishing, when a bit on the engine breaks, they ring the woman at home who organises for that to be uh, put into place. The children are reared and looked after. The businesses are run. The fish are, fish are sold by, by the women who are at home. And, and there is an association, a group of Manor Namara in Ireland that would be women who, who would have that role and would also support each other when the men were out at sea. So there was this huge respect that was always there. Now, it was tough. There are some things that don't come as easily to a woman as they do to a man. 
And one of those, these are just some pictures of me teaching, um, lots of different courses, and, and some women in there as well. But one of the things that didn't um, come as easily, I'll just go back to this slide, um, was reversing boat trailers. And I was pretty rubbish at reversing boat trailers when I started in the Regional Fisheries College. And one of the other master mariners um, would always reverse the boat trailers for me when I was running a course, and there was a lot of boat trailer reversing, believe it or not, because you had two boats and you had to put them in and out and in and out of the water. And one day he wasn't available and I had to reverse the boat. So the three male students, I'll never forget it as long as I live, stood on the top of the pier and watched me. It took me an hour and a half to reverse the boat trailer down to the water. I went this way, I went that way, I went this way, I went that way. I was lucky I didn't put the jeep and the boat into the sea. Afterwards, I went into the toilet and I did, I, men probably do this but won't admit it as much, and I cried my eyes out. I had been completely humiliated. And I bawled and bawled and bawled, and as I cried, the tears, you know the way they run down your face and into your mouth? And they taste as salt, because they are salt. Your tears, you know when they say that the sea is in our blood? It is our blood. We're exactly made of seawater. We came from the sea. Our tears are exactly the same as seawater. And as the tears ran into my eyes, I thought, no, I, I want to do this. And I went to a nearby forest, and I reversed boat trailers where nobody could see me. And I went for a job interview a couple of years later, and they said, what was your greatest achievement in your career? And I said, my greatest achievement to date in my career was the day a fisherman knocked on the door and asked me to reverse his boat trailer because I was the best boat trailer reverser on the pier, and I was able to get it out of a tricky spot. And it, was, it sounds weird, but it was a huge, big deal for me. And I love teaching because of the passion that I had for everything that was there. And what happens when you've passion for what you're doing is you don't work and you don't feel like you're working and you enjoy every day that you're out at the sea. And you also, you, you kind of volunteer to do things. Now I'm going to just try the walk around mic for a second for this. We, I take thousands of children to the shore. I, I love taking out school children. There I was showing them um, a cod, and you can see by their faces that they, they were enjoying it. We were having great fun. And I went to loads and loads of schools that were all over the country. And one day I went into a school that was in Limerick, and it was a really deprived area. Um, the children came from very, very tough backgrounds. And 90% of the school had never, ever gone to the sea. They'd never seen the sea at all. And I went to the headmistress and I said, look, we, we have to get these kids to the sea. They'd loved the crabs and the periwinkles I'd brought in, and we need to take them down to the sea. So we took the crabs, uh, we took the kids, and I said, even if I have to pay for the buses myself, we'll get them to the sea. And we made a plan that we were going to take them to Phoenix. And I had dived in Phoenix and I'd done native oyster surveys, but I'd never walked on the beach. So the morning came when I was meant to be in Phoenix, and I turned up like I always do about a couple of hours early and I walked down on the beach and there was nothing there. There was some dead oyster shells. It's not, it's not that the beach is polluted or anything, it's just a beach that doesn't have a lot of life on it. And I rang my father and I said, oh, Dad, I've really screwed up this time. He's very good, my father. Yeah, I don't know how he puts up with me, but I said, I've really screwed up this time. I didn't check the beach. There's two busloads of these children coming down because they were doing the morning with me and then they were going to the aquarium. There used to be an aquarium in the afternoon. And I said, there's nothing on this beach for them to see. There's nothing at all anywhere. 
a few dried up bits of seaweed and some dried oysters. And as I was talking to him, the buses pulled up and all the children pile out, you know, all excited because they'd never seen the sea before. And I went up to the teacher and I was standing by the teacher at the bus and I said, oh my God, I've really screwed up. There's nothing here to see. And, and the children, I, I brought some... They, one of the kids came running up and she was so excited. She held a tiny bit of dried seaweed in her hand and she went, oh my God, she said, what's, what, what's this? And I went, it's dried seaweed. And she said, oh my goodness, tell me all about it. And I started to talk about the seaweed and I realized to that girl, that seaweed was the most exciting thing that she had ever seen in her life. And when I started talking about the seaweed and I said, oh, seaweed, it has no roots and it holds on to the rope, uh, holds on to the rock and it takes all its nutrients from the seawater. And I started to talk about the seawater. I began to realize that in the sea, every single thing is so special. And as I spoke about the seaweed, it was like a dawning light to me that seaweed was incredible. And I came back and actually set up a seaweed course. It was one of the first in the world to teach people how to grow seaweed and how to eat seaweed that was on the shore. And I've kept, when I was preparing for this talk, I actually discovered that day had meant so much to me um, with the kids on the beach. And they'd all written notes saying it was the best day of our lives. And I'd actually kept them because it had meant so much to me. And thank you, Susan. I didn't bring the ones that said it was the best day of my life. I kept them at home. And it made me, the passion that I had for the sea that we passed on, we never work a day in the life. And I suppose the one thing I'd say about women and the sea and what you're going to hear over the next few days is a credible amount of passion. So thank you all very much. So um, our next speaker is Dr. Julie Maguire, who I've known since I arrived in Ireland in 2001, um, and admired her career ever since. Um, she's a research director and manager of the Dottie Murshu uh, Marine Research Station in, in Bantry, County Cork. She works on shellfish aquaculture and fisheries with a PhD from University College Cork. She worked in UCC actually for many years um, as a project officer and postdoctoral fellow, and also with the Seafish Industry Authority in Scotland. And she's been at, uh, her current, in her current role since 2005, and has been involved and has led many national and international research projects on aquaculture and the marine environment, including some very creative and innovative things, which I hope we'll hear something about uh, this, this, after this evening. So uh, I work in Bantry, and uh, that's the view from my office window. So it's pretty nice. I was kind of wondering what I talk about, and I'm, I'm, I really don't really like to talk about myself much, like most Irish people. So I'm going to just talk about what we do on our research station. So basically, it was established originally in 1987, and it was part of um, UCC's Aquaculture Development Centre, but. In 2005, so 10 years, it became Ireland's first independent um, commercial research centre. And uh, so we have our kind of, I, I'm just thinking now it's 10 years, we should really do something. But that on the 1st of October, we set it up. So I have to think about that. So at the moment, um, we have seven EU funded projects, and I'm going to talk a little about them today. So, um, just quickly about um, the uh, facilities we have. We have land and sea-based facilities, and we do a lot of experimental trials on fish and shellfish, as Tasman said, and we have labs and pumps and recirculation units and filtration, and um, we also have a hatchery, 
um, where we grow, uh, we hatch out scallops and sea urchins. And, and seaweed as well. Okay, we also have polytunnel, which houses, um, it actually at the moment it houses our sea urchins, and um, it's, it's, it's brand new, so I said I'd put a picture on it. But when we, I, I don't know what size this is, maybe about 40 meters long or something, the day we put it up, we had an attack of the birds, so um, we're, we have to, <laughs> you know, we have to redo um, the roof after the winter. I would say when um, we get some bad storms and the roof will definitely blow off, but you know, it's, um, it's, it, it'll be a good facility. So if anyone has any kind of um, special kind of uh, secrets of how to, how to scare away seagulls, I'd be delighted to hear them. So we also have access, because we're beside a salmon um, farm and, and Bantry's famous for its mussels, and our directors have um, uh, our salmon farmers and mussel farmers, we have access to all their um, shellfish and finfish cages, which is great for us because it means we can do commercial trials as well. And, um, and we have a farm boat. Actually, we have three or four of them. So, and we have loads of tanks, tanks a million. We have uh, about 30 outdoor and indoor tanks from about 600 litres to about 8,000 litres are our biggest ones. We actually got some even bigger, the 25,000 litre tanks now as well, but we haven't set them up yet. And we use these for um, finfish disease trials. We're the only company that has a license to do clinical trials. Um, and at the moment, we're doing some trials on amoebic gill disease. It's a, it's a, it's a big salmon disease that's kind of attacking, um, you know, the Irish coast at the moment and Scotland and Norway as well. And as I said before, we do sea urchin culture and seaweed research. So then the staff, there's, there's only 11 of us. And, um, you know, we have some PhD students. We have two PhD students and we've got some technical people and we've got some interns. We always have a couple of interns. At the moment, we have an intern from Brazil and we have an Italian intern as well. So I think the staff, I think we're 50-50 on the gender. As you can see there, that's, that's nearly all of us apart from the person taking the photograph. And uh, so what do we do then? So the research work, because we started 10 years ago, it's kind of grown steadily and we do a lot of consultancy, commercial trials, and we also coordinate and participate in a lot of EU projects. And um, so these projects, as I said before, are on sea urchins, disease trials, thin fish, and farming and processing of seaweed and research on microalgae. So then, these are the, the logos of our current projects. So just to kind of go through them um, quickly, we have this project called ACLIFOT, and it's um, a Marie Curie training network. Um, Marie Curie is a funding scheme that the European Union has, and it's devoted to the study of photosynthetic acclimation processes in plants and algae. So, um, so we are studying three species of microalgae, so Arabidopsis, sorry, it's very hard to say, Chlamydomonas and Phaeodactylum. And we have 12 partners across Europe and everybody has a PhD student. Well, clearly one partner has two PhD students. And, um, but a lot of the PhD students will do their research in Bantry and um, we have two PhD students from Nepal, actually, and they're 
registered in Oxford University. And uh, recently we signed a memorandum of understanding with Oxford, because Oxford isn't on the sea. So anytime they have kind of marine research to do, they send them up, their students over to us. Um, just on, uh, Fiona is our PhD student on this project, and her project's really interesting, actually, because um, we grow microalgae, and you can use it as biofuel, or we use it to feed our shellfish. And, you know, we were getting kind of, we do the exact same thing all the time. You know, you sterilize the water, you inoculate your cultures, and then you wait for it to grow. And it grows really quickly because it reproduces every four hours or so. But sometimes you can get up to 80% oil, and other times then it's just four, even though, even though you've done exactly the same thing. So Fiona, Fiona's PhD is seeing, you know, you know why is it 80% and 4%. And she's concluded that it's down to the bacteria in your cultures, because you're always going to get bacteria you know, especially when you upscale. And um, some bacteria are kind of oil-eating bacteria, and others are oil-promoting bacteria. And so now she's in her third year, she's trying to promote the oil-promoting bacteria. And uh, so it's very, very interesting. And clearly, we're not a university, so she's registered in the University of Dusseldorf. Um, we tried to get her registered in a... In a in a local university, um, maybe I should talk to Tasman because <laughs> um, basically, don't want to get into the politics too much, but the local universities wanted too much money and Dusseldorf was free. So that's the reason she's registered in Dusseldorf. Incidentally, actually, for this PhD, we, um, we advertised and we got 40 applicants and we didn't get one single Irish applicant. Not one. And it, Marie Curie is really well-funded, so um, maybe I'm advertising wrong. But, um, but we got a really good candidate, and Fiona is fantastic, and she's, she's from Kenya, so it was nice to give her the opportunity. So then iDream is another kind of exciting project. It's called Increasing Industrial Resource Efficiency in European Mariculture, which basically involves the practice of integrated multi-trophic aquaculture, IMTA. So... Basically, what that means is you have your salmon farm, and obviously it gives out nutrients. So we try and use those nutrients, and we grow seaweed around the salmon farm to trap all the nutrients. And we also grow sea urchins under the cages, and you know they will they will graze around the bottom of the cage. And you know uh, we also have we do this in seven places around Europe. So. We have two sites in Scotland. We have one in Norway. The Norwegian site is actually up in the Arctic Circle. Um, Cyprus, Israel, and Italy. Um, the Norwegian site is, is, well, it was kind of, you know, we, we did identical, you know, we actually did the same in Ireland as we did in Scotland and Norway. We um, seeded our, our algae in December, which is what you do normally, and then you harvest in... May and you harvest these these lines and it, it's just like you're putting out blue rope because it's just little seedlings you can't really see them at that stage and then you know we were all supposed to sample once a month but you go and sample in January and there's nothing there and February there's nothing there because it's, it's dark and um, 
the Norwegians were like, it's not working, it's not working, it's not working. And I said, how much daylight do you have? And he was like, half an hour. And I was like, still, <laughs> give it a chance. But lo and behold, the Norwegians got nearly the best, um, the best growth. They, well, ours were more or less the same. We got about 20 kilos per linear meter by May. So it's a really fast growing rate. But there was no difference really between our sites and our control sites, which weren't near a salmon farm because there's so many nutrients. It's a very rich ocean, the Atlantic. And so, you know, but it is still taking nutrients from the sand farm. But interestingly, in Cyprus and Israel and Italy, there was a huge difference between the control and, and the, the seaweed that was grown around the, um, the salmon because, or sorry, sea bream and sea bass down there because the Mediterranean is quite oligotrophic, meaning that it doesn't have that many nutrients really compared to the Atlantic. So we also have another PhD student on this, Daryl, and um, he's also, he's developed his own aquaponics system, which uh, is kind of um, like hydroponics, I suppose. So he has his fish tanks and, um, you know, he's got trout in them and he's got some mussels in there filtering the water. And on the top then he grows salicornia, Salicornia is sea asparagus, isn't it? Sea asparagus, it's like, it's, it's really, really nice. It's kind of like a, well, it's not a seaweed per se, but it's, it grows in salt marshes and seems to really work quite well. So, you know, so, oh yeah, this is just a kind of a diagram of the whole theory behind our IMTA production. So you've got waste, it's particulate or dissolved, bivalves, which is like mussels or clams or, you know, scallops, your algae. So I just carry on, but that's just a nice kind of the whole cycle. So see, Bioplast, one of my favorite projects, actually, because we grow the seaweed and then we're like, what do we do with it? So we have this project, Seaweeds from Sustainable Aquaculture as a Feedstock for Biodegradable Bioplastics. So we make plastic out of it. It makes really good plastic. Um, we were really surprised how good the plastic is, and we have about 10 patents from this project because um, one of our plastics that we produced is fully biodegradable. You just put it in water and it'll disappear straight away. And it is as tough as um, normal plastic. We've also made a paint as well out of, um, out of the seaweed, and we've made um, PLA, which is a polymerized lactic acid, which is kind of like a liquid plastic. You, put, you use it in 3D printing machines. So um, I printed, um, or we printed a, a fleece, like a coat jacket from seaweed, and it's all made out of seaweed. And um, yeah, so that's one of my, in fact, I, a couple of weeks ago, I had a meeting with the body shop because they were interested in buying the patents for the plastics and stuff. So hopefully it'll, It'll happen. So when you go to the shop and you see a bottle made out of seaweed, that'll be us. Well, yeah, we coordinate this project, and there's 11 partners around Europe for this. So Odin, um, this is a project. It's run by UCC, and um, it's in northern Europe. We have um, a problem with vitamin D because we don't get that much sunlight, so we ha there's a bit of a vitamin D deficiency in Europe. So this project was um, aimed to um, fortify salmon 
with vitamin D. So when we eat the salmon, we will get the benefits from the vitamin D. So as I said, there's 18 partners and we're, we're just part of this big kind of consortium. We're doing the salmon part, but they're also trying um, to put it into vegetables and mushrooms, I think is the other one, um, which is kind of um, difficult, I suppose, because mushrooms grow in the dark. But we, we got some res good results with the, the salmon. Um, this project I really like as well, we coordinate this because on the sheep's head, we have a huge problem with our waste. And um, our waste, salmon waste in the processing plant is called um, category three waste. So category three waste is like kind of, oh my God, it's the worst type of waste. So you have to get a special, um, you know, a, a special kind of collection, collection people that will take it away. and. Um, you know, it's very, very, very expensive. And we tagged our waste just to see where it went, you know, because they collected and we have no idea where it goes. And um, it ended up in Germany. So, you know, because we sat, uh, tracked it with a satellite tag. So this project aims to develop small-scale automatic anaerobic digestion machines that enables the domestic on-site treatment of a wide range of organic waste at low cost and with low maintenance. So. Um, I don't know if you know much about anaerobic digestion, but 650 litres is about the size of a wheelie bin. So we put it into a hopper, there's some feeding, grinding, then it's digested by these anaerobic bacteria, and they produce methane, and then we, the methane is converted into electricity, and we have heat recovery, and this system runs the electricity for our, our station. So if everyone had one at home, because the best waste actually was um, the restaurant waste, sorry. Yeah, so because there was such a mixture. Fish waste was good, but the carbon-nitrogen ratio was off a bit, so we have to add in paper with that to, to make it, um, um, to get it up and going for the bacteria. We also have a number of, we have three projects um, on the, funded by the um, space theme, and you're like, space? What is that all about? Why would you, if you're a marine biologist, work with space? But um, Azimuth is applied simulations and integrated modeling for the understanding of toxic and harmful algal blooms. So um, we have a forecast for algal blooms. So we use satellite data and we, um, you know, the, the monitoring data from the Marine Institute, and we can kind of predict when a bloom is going to so we have a bulletin that we put out every week and we also have an alert system like we had a red tide only two weeks ago in West Cork and uh, so we're able to predict that and um, this second project in November 2003 we were awarded the, Euro uh, the Copernicus Masters Award from the European Space Agency for the best service for European citizens and um, over in Germany so that was kind of nice so um, I won't talk about this one, it's another space one. Um, but that over there is a bloom. That's what it looks like on the satellites. And up there is a... I like that picture because <laughs> normally Ireland is covered in cloud, so you can't really see it. <laughs> but um, no, uh, the blooms are kind of formed on the continental shelf and then they're pushed in with currents and tides and what have you. And Normally, a lot of the time anyway, Donegal gets hit first and we're always kind of wondering why Donegal, why Donegal? 
but it's because it's closer to the shelf than we are. So, um, so you can see it's pretty distinctive. And that's a red tide there in the middle. I don't know if you can see it. You can see the red. And uh, so, okay. Oh, yes. Then, recently, this new project at Lantos started. And basically, we're taking the, the, we're taking the, the prediction or the forecast to the whole of the Atlantic. So from America down to South America, down to South Africa. So that project has 64 partners. And it's doing everything, not just, you know... So, there you go. So, anyone, we'd love to see you down in Bantry. If anyone wants to pop in for a visit, there are all our contact details. You can find us easily enough. And um, thank you very much for listening. Thanks very much, Julie. And again, we'll save the questions till the, uh, to the end of the, of the session. So... Um, our third speaker this evening is Professor John Mack, who's Professor of World Art Studies at the University of East Anglia, having formerly been head of a British Museum department and senior keeper of the British Museum as a whole. He's a long interest in the sea and maritime cultures, going, going back to being brought up in Ireland and living and working as an anthropologist on the island of Madagascar. His most recent book is The Sea, A Cultural History, and he's currently working up a major grant application on coastlines with potential tie-ups to colleagues in UCD and the National Museum of Ireland. And he's a fellow of the British Academy. Well, thank you very much, and thank you for the invitation, actually, in my case, to come again, since I was privileged to speak at uh, the same event last year. Um, uh, I come from a very different direction from the previous two speakers, though there is one rather peculiar and totally coincidental uh, connection, which is that uh, I too uh, was partly brought up, or at least I spent part of my uh, adolescence also in West Cork, um, and had the privilege actually of speaking at the West Cork Literary Festival in Bantry last year, which was, which was excellent. Um, I'm going to come at this from a cultural direction. I know very little about marine biology, um, but uh, most of what I've worked on is to do with the history and culture of uh, mariners uh, thinking about the relationships between the sea and the land and things like that. So the idea of doing something on the gender of ships struck me as being a very difficult, actually, problem to try and understand and explain, but one that uh, is at least worth, I think, reflecting on. In preparation, I did uh, one of the obvious things, and I looked through the indexes of the Mariner's uh, Mirror, well-known uh, historical, essentially historical journal, goes way back, uh, and which um, I read from 1965 right through until 2015. I, when I say read, I actually looked at the index. And I tried to see how many articles there were by women or about women, and I found one. Um, and it was published in 1968. It was by a woman, and it was about a woman, and the woman was Grace Darling, the uh, famous uh, lighthouse uh, keeper's uh, daughter. But beyond that, nothing. Uh, then I thought I'd have a look at N.A.M. Rogers' um, three volumes, definitive volumes on the history of the Royal Navy, and check the index to that, and so on. 
uh, and I came up with virtually no references again, and even a volume like that. So I began to wonder, is there a topic here at all on women in the sea? Where are the women? Because they certainly aren't in these narratives. So that was, as it were, my uh, starting point in, in thinking about this. But let me, so, and that's indeed what I'm going to try and reflect on now. But let me start with uh, a quotation. Um, and I'll, I haven't got it on the screen here, so I'll have to read it. Uh, the difficulty arises from the fact that one does not deal with women in a mob, but with a woman as an individual. So we may have to do, so we may have to do with men, but in each of us there lurks some particle of the mob temperament. No matter how earnestly we strive against each other, we remain brothers on the lowest level of our intellect and instability of our feelings. With women it is not so. Much as they are to us, they are nothing to each other. Those sensitive creatures have no ears for our blandishments. I would illustrate my idea of fidelity as between men and man and woman by a statement which, though it may appear shockingly sophisticated, is really very simple to forget oneself, to surrender all personal feeling in the service of that fine art is the only way for a man to the, to the faithful discharge of his trust. Mm. Well, a fine art, so what is the, what is the fine art? Uh, you might think it's essentially something about uh, loving fidelity between men and women. But what I've done is actually to play a trick. What I've done is to take out the word ship in this text and replace it with women. Uh, and this is Joseph Conrad talking about seamanship, talking about sailing, and talking about it as if the ship is indeed a woman. Uh, so that uh, essentially is my starting point for this. And I, I, I was checking, uh, uh, actually I came by ferry, so I was checking on the ferry, uh, and um, I came across what I thought was an interesting further uh, quotation uh, from um, uh, Conrad. And he says, uh, almost apologetically, a ship, though she has female attributes and is loved very unreasonably, is different from a woman. So he's actually sort of set it up in such a way that he's feminized the ship to the extent that uh, he almost has to explain that it isn't a woman. So uh, I think the, this, this idea of ships being female, uh, we always, you know, she, we always use of ships, certainly in English, doesn't work in all languages, but it certainly works in many, uh, is an interesting um, point of departure, I think. Um, so um, let me then move on and see if we can set this up uh, in, uh, as, a, as a sort of problem and think through some of the implications. First of all, of course, ships are almost always made by men. So uh, here we have uh, at the top um, uh, uh, Pacific Island canoes being built. Uh, alongside it, uh, uh, shipbuilders from uh, British Columbia. And at the bottom, some historical uh, archival pictures of uh, Holland and Wool shipyards in Belfast. So Ships are made by men. There's absolutely no uh, uh, question that that is so, and that practice carries on. Uh, certainly in many of the traditional societies around the world, it continues in that way. And there's a very strong association of the making of ships with, with men. 
But of course, ships are launched by women and have been for a very long time. And this picture, I'm afraid, isn't big enough for you to see, see this, but certainly in the, uh, uh, the red, uh, under the red canopy there are, are women involved in, uh, in a ship launch. So we have here a kind of, I think, an interesting situation that something which is made by men is, uh, is always launched, certainly in more recent times, by women. Um, so what's going on here? Uh, I think, in a way, there's a whole series of rather interesting symbolic constructions which come into being, if you like, at the moment of, of launching. First of all, a ship is... Uh, involved in a, at, at its moment of launching in a sort of transition rite, as, as anthropologists would describe it. It's a simple thing in a way. One could say, well, something which has been on land is now going into the sea. And last uh, time I talked here, I was talking about the way in which the sea and the land uh, can be constructed as different domains, and therefore the interactions that happen between them at the coast have uh, a much enhanced significance, or a ritual significance in many ways. So that would, this would seem to be, a, in a way, an example of that. But I think there's more, much more indeed going on here. Because a ship on land, as built by men, uh, is of course uh, a totally inanimate thing, an object. Once it's launched, of course, uh, it becomes animate. It becomes, in a sense, a social entity as we'll see, but of course it also becomes mobile. So there is something happening here which totally alters its, uh, its significance. Uh, and that, I think, is, uh, is a significant part of it. Um, in terms of who uh, launches ships and how it happens, um, of course, uh, women are uh, always uh, technically involved in this. This is, I'll just run through a, f a series to show you how totally international this is. This is in uh, Philadelphia, and it's Mrs. Woodrow Wilson um, launching uh, a, a ship during her husband's presidential uh, uh, reign. Uh, a similar event taking place more contemporaneously in India. Uh, same event in Korea. The same event again in Fiji. And, of course, even uh, recent royals in the uh, United Kingdom get, uh, get, the same, get the same role. And I'm fascinated to see how she launches a rubber dinghy by pouring, water over, by pouring champagne over it rather than breaking the bottle. Uh, this is possibly my favorite. This is Sophia Loren. And I think that must be Nana Muscuri on the far side. And I wondered, was that Peter Lawford? Anyway, I'm not absolutely sure. Um, but she is launching a ship called La Magnifica, but of course she's 75 years old, so one wonders, what the, well, it's a pretty good choice of person to launch such a ship, I think. So um, uh, ships clearly, therefore, uh, are in some sense given birth through this process. So they're, they're made by men, they're launched they're um, baptized almost uh, using uh, 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 usually champagne. Um, and they're reborn as animate objects with a soul, uh, if one follows Conrad's thinking through, uh, with a name um, and with, a female, uh, with female characteristics as, as described. The person launching them is often referred to as the ship's godmother. 
so there's a very strong kind of uh, sense here that um, an object uh, which has been made by men has been feminized by being launched by women and has entered the domain of the sea to be manned, of course, largely by men. So there's something, I think, very um, uh, interesting uh, going on in that, in that, um, in that context. Now, um, if one thinks also, therefore, about how um, uh, the sorts of taboos and so forth that go with, uh, with, with uh, uh, shipping, uh, so it, uh, this, I, th uh, I think, very good book about um, the experience of being a trawlerman, in fact, being an untrained, naive trawlerman in the case of Redmond O'Hanlon, uh, going off into the uh, wilds of the North Atlantic in midwinter uh, on a trawler. He describes a whole series of taboos which have to be observed before the ship, uh, before they set out uh, uh, to sea. And amongst them are a whole series to do with uh, women. Women absolutely are not, involved, not allowed on the ships. That's number one. If they even touch the ships, then there's a ritual process that has to be gone through before trawlermen set out. And we're talking here of, you know, uh, within the last decade. So this is not uh, historical material. Um, all sorts of things to do with women being involved with uh, inaugurating nets before they go fish when they're new, um, and so on. So there's a whole series, I think, of, of uh, events of that sort that are, are tied into this. Um, it, the same kind of thing happens to some degree elsewhere. So here we are in Santa Cruz, in, in the, again in the Pacific, uh, an outrigger canoe. Now, women have to be have to be moved around the islands. They're part of, uh, as it were, the shipping um, fraternity for that reason. But of course, once they are on the ship, they are separated off. So here you see they've built a house on the outrigger of the canoe, and that is for the privacy of women, but also ablutions. They are not allowed to. Uh, be in the hull of the ship. They certainly aren't allowed to ablute in relation to the ship, and so on. So there's a whole set of regulations which are, if you like, again, separating off, in this case, the male and the, and, and the female engagement with, uh, with, with the ship. Figureheads, I noticed one, a female one, when I was sitting down uh, in this building, uh, and of course, although they're not necessarily rigorously um, always female, they very often are. So the ship is feminized, and the figurehead, to some degree, uh, re reflects that. If um, people are at sea and uh, they are saved from some uh, desperate fate, then often an ex-photo painting is created and almost always you'll find the figure of the Virgin Mary is, is, uh, is pictured in it. It's particularly associated with the Mediterranean. Um, similar, and you find pictures of this kind all over um, uh, Malta and, and other of the islands of the Mediterranean. Uh, this example is actually Mexican. Um, this is a, a Mediterranean one. And to show that it's not just historical pictures, here's one from uh, 1907. So it's, it's a, again, it's, a, it's something that carries on, if you like, into the um, present century, or the last century. 
And then, of course, one gets to the issue of mermaids and the feminizing, if you like, of uh, the creatures of the sea. Um, and I think mermaids is a very interesting topic. I, um, I was speaking at a conference last week, in fact, about this topic in, in, in Oxford. Uh, and this is a, a painting from, in fact, from the, the Atlantic coast of the Congo, where there's a tradition called Mami Wata, Mami Wata's pigeon for uh, mother water. Um, but this is from a um, French-speaking part of the world, so it's called La Sirene in, in that part of the world. Siren, French for sirens. Um, and as you can see, this sort of voluptuous um, uh, figure uh, drawing men, as it were, into the world of the underwater. Uh, a, a very familiar kind of image, I think, for, um, uh, for many of us. Um, and it also finds its way, the same kind of idea of Mami Wata is actually very international. It's a fascinating story because it's, it, it, the, the image of Mami Wata, uh, as here, for example, actually comes from a, um, one of these kind of uh, people shows of the early, 19th, uh, the early 20th century in Hamburg. Uh, and is represents, it represents a, uh, an Indonesian woman who appeared in the show with snakes and so on. Uh, and the advertisement for it went global. Uh, and in lots of coastal parts of the world, the image of Mamiwata, uh, as, it, as it became known, um, uh, became a very powerful cult uh, phenomenon. In Haiti, as in this image, uh, it became associated with, uh, with voodoo and voodoo. Uh, but again, this kind of association of this spirit, protective spirit, because voodoo is not always the um, dreadful thing that it's often made out to be. Um, it's actually very strongly protective in many contexts. And here you have uh, an image of a mirror which represents the sea itself and so on, um, all uh, tied up in the, the same image. Um, 19th century artists were very involved with this as well. So this is Edward uh, uh, Byrne-Jones's um, picture of the sirens summoning in the ship. Um, and another of his pictures, which I'll, I'll end with, uh, which shows a mermaid drawing down uh, the, the Greek god-like uh, mariner to uh, his demise. But I think we may misunderstand this quite seriously. You'll notice she's got this sort of rather voluptuous kind of smile as if she somehow you know, grabbed something she was really after. But one has to remember that uh, actually mermaids are living a, 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 a life alone in the seas in this kind of conception. And so actually what she thought she'd got was a lover, not that she's trying to kill him, quite the reverse. But of course he can't breathe like she can underwater. So actually, it's quite a different uh, um, interpretation of this particular image. And the, there has been discussion by John Ruskin and other art historians of how uh, the image of the face is actually in its way much more alluring even than the Mona Lisa, such as her pride in her capture of, of, of the seaman. So um, I'll end there, but let me just uh, perhaps think a little bit about what this might mean. And I think in a way, um, uh, 
the issue is at least partly one for sort of feminist theory and so on. Feminist theory started out being essentially um, about trying to find the female narrative, if you like, in um, a male-dominated uh, way of thinking about and presenting the world. I think, for me, um, what's much more interesting and much more important uh, is, the way, is the dialogical way in which this works. So, in fact, if you have a situation where a domain of work is so dominated by one gender, then, in effect, one should never leave out the other element of it because it's actually in the relationship of the two that uh, you create the world of gender, in fact, because gender, of course, obviously, it has its biological elements, but gender is essentially constructed socially by such things as the gendering of ships and the gendering of uh, the maritime world. Thank you. You're very welcome to ask any questions that you may have. I'll kick things off then. Julie, I was curious as the application of the question he asked was about our application for the plastic that dissolves in water. Like we thought the same thing. How 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 good is that? You know, that's a bit kind of useless. So we said we better ask some packaging people, and they were like, Are "You joking? There's loads. Like you could put seeds in it, and then you just put it. You know, you could use a dishwasher tablets. You know, there's loads of things. You know, like that. But we also have one type of plastic." that uh, you can eat afterwards, so it doesn't dissolve in water. So you can, like, put whatever liquid in a bottle and you can eat the bottle. I like that one. Hi, I'd like to ask Julie, um, I don't, when you um, forecast, like, an algae bloom, what do you do with that forecast? As in, is it just, yeah, what's the next step? <laughs> That's a good question. Um, basically, we have a lot of people signed up for the forecasts and um, it's very important for fishermen or for fish farmers because that Carinia bloom that hit two weeks ago, it, um, the red tide, like at night it will, uh, it will respire. So it'll take all the oxygen out of, out of the water. So a lot of things, um, a lot of the animals died because of this Carinia bloom. So if you are a salmon farmer, you will try and harvest all your fish or at least you can get aeration under your cages. Same with the, um, the mussel farmers, they'd harvest whatever needs to be harvested. Unfortunately, there's very little we can do with um, the native species. But at the same time, this is a very, like people always ask me, sorry, that, you know, it's like, is this pollution? Is this that? Red tides have always been around and um, we don't really know much about how they even start. But once they're there, you know, we know they can be quite destructive. So, um, but, um, yeah, it's, it's mainly a warning that fish farmers use, and they're kind of grateful of it, you know, when it happens. But they can do something then, rather than... Information is always power. It's good to know these things are on the way. Just from the, the SFPA point of view, kind of on the, the seafood safety, is some, some of the blooms, um, the mussels and different shellfish concentrate them in their, in their guts so they can actually have different forms of shellfish poisoning when you eat them. And what normally happens is guys harvest and then wait for the results to come back and then they might have to dump all of the shellfish or worse still, they mightn't have results and they might have sold stuff and have to do a recall. There was one a few weeks ago. So this then allows them to say, well, I 
I can see there's a bloom coming in. I'm not going to harvest for a couple of weeks. We'll go off and have our holidays, you know, at this point when it's about to come in. So it's a kind of a forward warning system so that they're not harvesting as well. Could I ask John, who was the artist who did the, the, who did the work you've shown? Uh, Edward Byrne Jones. He did a whole series of mermaids, including uh, pictures, uh, some paintings in, in uh, Shoreham of mermaids swimming in the sea, and it actually says um, something like, directly observed from nature. Um, I have a question for John. Um, John, you mentioned about women launching ships and also figureheads being feminine. You didn't say much about ships being named after women. The reason I ask is that I'm actually named for a boat, so the other way around. So I was just wondering if you could say something about uh, maybe uh, the naming of ships and the use of women's names. Sorry, the question is about the, name, the names yes. that ships have? Yes, the naming of, of, of ships for women. In particular? Yes. Um, well, obviously many aren't named for women. Some, some are, some aren't. I, it doesn't seem to, to run into, into that uh, area. The one, one detail I left out is, is the, um, the fact that, of course, if, if, you, if you launch it incorrectly, um, that too is a, a very bad luck for the ship. And the ideal solution is that you have to, the woman uh, involved has to do three things simultaneously. One is name the ship, so speak the name of the ship. At the same time, the bottle is supposed to break on the ship. And the third thing is it's supposed to move. And if you can get all of those three timed correctly, then, uh, then it's, um, it's, it's a good omen. I don't think that happened with the Titanic somehow. But I, I'm sorry, beyond that, I, I don't know specifically about the naming of ships. John, if I, if I may just make an observation myself, I can remember as quite a young man in the fishing industry that it was quite clear, certainly in places like Holt, which isn't very far from here, that if you went down the quay to go to sea and you met a red-haired woman, you turned right back home again. That's yeah. the way it was. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And, you know, we believed in it. I don't know why, but uh, if the older men said that's what was going to happen, that's what was going to happen. Okay. Uh, the, other, the other question, I want to ask you one question. You, you know, the, the question of figureheads, predominantly female, is there any good examples that you know of of male figureheads, and are there any particular reasons why there would be? Is it to do with military ships or what? Well, I think there probably are uh, examples of that, and there's, in a sense, they're often transgressive figures in some ways. You know, that is, they're, they're, they're not... Um, sort of memorializations or, or something like that, that, you know, you find on, on early ships, you find sometimes images of Arabs, for example, almost as if it's a kind of going back to something to do with the Crusades and the status of, of uh, and mummers and all those kind of things. So there's, it, it's often not actually, um, you know, it's not Admiral Lord Nelson or whatever it might be. It is often a, a figure that is in some way more transgressive than anything else. But I'm not aware of, of, so that would be my observation of it. But I, it seems as if women certainly do, as far as one can tell, predominate in that. There's actually a very good Irish PhD student working in Hull, I think, on this. I remember hearing her talk once and very, very good description of the process. But I don't, I don't know beyond that, yeah. I have a question for Susan, <laughs> if I'm allowed. 
I was just wondering, how do you juggle like the, one of the toughest jobs in, in Marine, running the SFPA, having seven kids, flying a plane, and um, what else? Running ultra marathons. The lo- yeah, <laughs> the long-suffering husband. Um, it's um, and the kids are really good cooks. Actually, they're they're brilliant at it. Um, yeah, and they, they mind it all. I think it. People often say that they say, "How do you manage it?" I don't know. It all just kind of fits in nicely. Um, I think one of the great secrets is if you build in running into getting to places. So I, I've kind of done some really odd ones of having meetings in Galway and then buying a bicycle on Dundee and cycling home. And you know, you fit exercise in around it all and then the kids are um they're incredible they're the 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 greatest supporters anyone can have the title for my talk more than mermaids i was saying to the kids god oh no i have to give a talk what am i going to talk about and it was actually um lizzie um, my second daughter down she said women and the sea more than mermaids and i thought god that's brilliant right that's it so i think the secret is they're all everybody um is all part of the team and then Poor John, long-suffering, support extraordinaire. And um, the one on the Kerryway Ultra, you'd run for a few hours and, um, and you'd, you couldn't be met in between. You'd have a support crew stop and um, you'd, you'd kind of come up over a huge mountain and you'd be coming down. All you'd be thinking about is, I'm going to have a cup of coffee and a bite of cheese sandwich and there would be John with the cheese sandwich and the cup of coffee. So it's, it's the support around you. And my mother, unfortunately, is ill now, but she was great as well. And Judy, everybody who's been around, I'm very lucky. Thank you. I was also going to ask Susan, because it was a very inspiring and eloquent talk about your passion for the sea and indeed the pioneering role that you played. And I was wondering, were there role models and particularly were there female role models for what you've been doing? When I started, and I I was really thinking about this with the talk because I I was going to, I was saying, well, will I talk about the role models that there were? Well, when I I started, we didn't have a telly and I didn't know any marine biologists at all. So the entire inspiration came from the sea itself and, and that was where the passion came from. But you, you learn, as you, uh, every single person in this room, as you, as you go up, you get words of wisdom from various people who, who mind you as such teachers in school, a biology teacher who gives you, you know, a word to the wise. Um, and I had an incredible PhD supervisor. Um, her name was Maura Mulcahy. She was the first, I think, female professor in UCC. And she made vice principal up there. And, and she would have taught me a huge number of different things. And I remember saying to her, and I'd say Julie was the same, I I said, did you ever hit a glass ceiling? Because we were at that age where we were all preoccupied with it. And she said, no, no, I never saw one of those. And, and later on, people were saying to me, did you ever hit a glass ceiling? And I was going, no, I don't know what it is. And I think a lot of inspiration came. Maura Mulcahy would have been one. But even on the first fish farm, it was a lady called Maura who's still in the industry who would have taught me how to clean the fish tanks. So there was women, there was women everywhere who were around the place, in the herring factories. Um, I remember a woman called Rita Murphy. She was from up the side of a mountain, and she could lift more than any man, and she could beat and always had done in all the races, everybody at everything, and she was really the spirit of the whole place. So there were, there were so many incredible people. I could, you, could, you could sit here and talk, and even when we were all doing our PhDs, myself and Julie, Pam Byrne, who's now head of the Food Safety Authority, we were some group of girls, I'd say, at that stage in UCC, with Maura Mulcahy minding all of us and um, so there, there were there were lots of inspirational women and I suppose one of the other other things are sometimes in Ireland and Julie said at the start of the talk she said I don't like talking my, about myself and I feel awkward talking about myself now there, there were women 
that didn't take leadership roles but actually led and ran the whole organization and they, they were incredible people um, that you would meet everywhere that would inspire you and look after you um, and take care of you so it was an interesting one yeah thank you thanks uh, Richard um, I have a, a question for John actually uh, thanks very much for um, the uh, beautiful images of the mermaids um, Richard doesn't read his own library. There is actually a book here called The Art of the Mariner, and most uh, ship heads look actually very androgynous, so we couldn't really say are they men or women. Mm. But uh, um, in the uh, ocean charts um, of the medieval times, we find very often depictions of mermen uh, that look rather um, seductive to the eyes as well, like all those, uh, the fantasy around the woman being the siren and uh, getting the ship uh, to sink at the end. Do you have any, any uh, notions of mermen and what their role was? Well, I, I, yeah, I'm aware of that. Um, but, I mean, it obviously, it's, it's mostly, mostly mermaids, uh, traditionally. But there are, uh, there are also um, a whole series of, uh, in inverted commas, fake mermaids that actually are very mermen, uh, which are made up of, I think they're... I used to curate these things at the British Museum, so I was, I've slightly forgotten over the last 10 years or so since I was there precisely where they came from. My recollection is India, but it might have been China. And they were made for the, uh, for the European market uh, in the 19th century, so later than that. And they were in the form of um, a sort of... The upper half was, was a monkey and the bottom half was a fish. Uh, and they were not pretty things. They were really very, very ugly. But it was all part of that... Um, it's a very 19th century... I mean, in, in uh, European terms, it's a very 19th century kind of phenomenon, this complete involvement with what, with what was actually happening under the water, not just what was happening on the surface of the water. And so mermaids really made a, a big comeback after the medieval period then, but they were definitely feminized at that point in time. You never see uh, mermen, as it were, in, in illustrations of that period. Um, so, uh, and actually, manabes, which would seem, I mean, a lot of people say that they are the, um, the reference to mermaids is actually a reference to them, uh, but they're not particularly, well, I'm speaking in front of marine biologists, they don't seem to me to be very pretty. Uh, um, uh, creatures, but there we are. Um, so they may, uh, may be part of any maleness that might come into it, but um, otherwise, I, I think it's almost entirely a medieval phenomenon as far as I'm aware. The, the thing about being a marine biologist is it, it kind of is awkward, isn't it? We're talking about people and things above the water. We're much more comfortable talking about seaweed and stuff that's under the water. And I was just, when I was thinking about this and women in the sea, I did a diving study once in Loch Ine on cuckoo wrasse. And I don't know, do you know much about cuckoo wrasse? The male, they call them Connor of the Rocks. They're beautiful, coloredy blue and orange and red fish, male. And they live in a harem with five to six females. <laughs> female wrasse are orange and black and tiny. So a female wrasse is about that size and a male cuckoo wrasse is about that big. And the, the, the females build nests 
and they have a territory and the male circles around the outside of the territory. And what we did was we went down on the diving and we put a mirror. And if the male kukuras saw a kukuras the same size as him, he'd kind of look at it. And if he saw a bigger kukuras, he'd go and disappear for about five hours. He was terrible. Um, but the interesting thing about kukuras is if there's no males around, the female spontaneously changes sex into a male. And that's what they do. So they don't really worry about sex in the kukuras rats thing. It doesn't matter if you're a woman of the sea or a man of the sea or any of those. Sorry, I don't know if you've No, actually, we, we, we grow rats, well, Bellin rats and um, Goldsinny, because they're brilliant at eating sea lice, so it's a kind of a really good sea lice control. But, you know, we put them in the tank and we give them actually ten females per male. We're kind of generous. Oh, oh, oh. <laughs> But then, obviously, you know, you need to take the male out eventually because, you know, but it is very hard to stop inbreeding, we find, because you can't tell the males from the females at the end because they're always switching sides. And, uh, yeah, but, yeah, so they're kind of a neutral gender of the sea. And don't even get me started on the hermaphrodites. Oh, my God. They're a nightmare in the hatchery. Scallops. Oh, my God. Yeah. I think the idea of marine biologists rather than medieval historians talking about mermaids is very interesting. <laughs> I, I was curious whether mermaids are, are always um, portrayed in a negative light in terms of luring sailors to their deaths or if there's ever a positive myth well, I think, around No, them. I think that actually the, the, the Mamiwata image I'm talking about it actually is positive, absolutely, yeah, okay. because it's a protective spirit. Yeah, okay. Well, no, one shouldn't say that. Uh, Mermaids, by definition, are ambiguous uh, entities. Uh, and so I think they, one has to say they have ambiguous powers, uh, both, well, not just for bad, obviously, because they are indeed protective. So you do get, uh, you know, they have that possibility of this mix of things. But that is of their essence, really, that they are um, unable. Uh, they, one can't classify them for all that Edward Byrne Jones tried to represent them as natural, uh, as of nature. Um, Julie, just wondering, going back to the hermaphrodites and the scallops, um, the scallops and the spat and the hatchery that you have, is it very good results that you get from the hatchery? And how, how's it working out for you in Bantry? Um, well, scallops are notoriously difficult in the hatchery, as you know, you probably know, and we get kind of mixed results. Um, like you, you know, at the start, you've trouble with spawning because you stimulate them to spawn and you give them. A... <laughs> yeah, you're hoping that. Well, you're expecting the sperm to come out first, but sometimes it's the eggs, and sometimes they come together, and before you know it, they've self-fertilized, and then you have to, they, they're kind of, you have to throw them away, unfortunately. So um, it's, it's, it's quite a tricky business, and then once you get your larvae, then you're, you know, everything is going along swimmingly, and uh, then is, uh, there's a, a stage where they metamorphose, and they start to develop a, a little shell and some byssus threads. They act a bit like mussels at the start with the little threads. And that's when you get huge mortalities. And we still don't know why um, at this stage because, you know, they're maybe about five or six weeks at this stage so um, that they all decide to, um, to die. So, like, a good spawning would be, if, a really good spawning if you've got about 20% survival, you know. But, you know, 
they spawn millions of eggs. So you're starting with millions, and if they all 100% survived, um, you'd be uh, you'd be in trouble. But we did have a, a project with some Norwegians, and um, we were trying to we did a breeding program because it was very very interesting. Actually, we took all the scallop populations from around the coast. And we wanted to see which ones were the best scallops, you know, in a hatchery setting. And uh, the best scallops were from Castletown Bear, actually. Um, yeah, they were brilliant breeders, you know, great in the, in, in, the, in, the, in the lab. But then when you put them at sea, the other ones tended to catch up. So they're great as babies, but then as adults, not so much. In training, you always had to have an exam. And... and Richard would be very, very much of the thing that any training we gave the fishermen, they had to be able to carry it. So it was all FETAC accredited. So it would go off to an accreditation board. And whatever you put in that exam, you were never going to be able to change it. And we put into the aquaculture one for shellfish that they had to successfully spawn either scallop or a mussel. And I remember sitting in scallop hatcheries with the students for 14 hours and only the male bits having gone and all of us going, oh no, we put it in the exam, why is it there? And, and going getting mussels in the end because they were much easier. Yeah. Okay, um, we're out of time at this stage, so I'd like to uh, thank all the three speakers for a fantastic set of really fascinating and inspiring talks and uh, I hope you all enjoyed the, uh, the session.